What's up, everyone? Welcome back to this episode of my life. Episode five already. Wow. I can't believe it's episode five. And I low key feel really bad because I took like a three week hiatus on podcasting because like, I don't know, I was just mentally not up for it. But however, I have a really special guest today here on my podcast. And I've, I've always talked about having a guest to speak with. And I finally got my hands on her. I have my Tita Pinky. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for inviting me on. Um, so I'll just start with introducing myself, I guess. Sure, yeah. Awesome. I'm Flo Layton. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner and therapist. I am currently seeing clients in private practice in New York City, and I am on the faculty at New York University. Um, what else do you want to know about me? Um, okay. So uh, talk about your current job. You're a therapist. Yes. So what types, if you can be specific about it, like if you can't, um, what types of patients do you get? What types of issues like, are your specialties in? If that makes sense. Sure. So I uh, specialize in medication management and therapy for clients that range in ages from high school all the way up to uh, clients in their 60s and 70s. And I work with people that struggle with things like depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder, um, you know, other mental health conditions. But primarily, most of the people that I work with are, you know, clients that come to me after having struggled with a major life adjustment, maybe moving to New York City, maybe taking that first job after graduating from college maybe coming into therapy for the first time after a breakup or something major that triggered some stress in their life. So, um, and, and now uh, due to COVID-19, I'm doing my work remotely. I'm, I'm you know, specializing in teletherapy and, and kind of working with people virtually. Awesome. So earlier you were showing me your whole workbook on it was like a pdf file on these tools of how to deal with covid specifically how to cope in this in the midst of the pandemic and i feel like on top of the covid pandemic we're really in the middle of a mental health epidemic as well like could you talk to me about how this pandemic has really affected your clients or patients or and just like the people around us like the whole energy surrounding mental health sure i think that you know i don't i can speak for myself and for you um, but for so many of us we have dealt with being forced to quarantine and be more isolated, uh, not being able to use the tools that we would normally use um, in order to cope with the day-to-day -day stress of life. We're dealing with a really stressful political climate right now. Um, we are dealing with a lot of the backlash um, because of things like 
the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of the protests and things that we're seeing in social media due to the Black Lives Matter movement. So 2020 has brought some really stressful times. And I think that everybody is kind of taking it on in different ways. And, um, you know, a lot of the challenges that people come into therapy kind of dealing with range from, you know, trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, um, trouble finding new ways of adapting to life at home, working at home, now transitioning to transitioning to going to school at home, um, you know, young adults that are, are really independent, having to move back home with their parents and negotiate trying to be an adult and also live under the roof with their parents. Um, and and kind of redefining that those relationships. And so, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, anxiety, how it shows up, what are the things that we can control, what are the things that we can't control. Um, I think you and I have talked a lot about the role of social media in a lot of these things. Um, I, I personally think that there are tremendous pros to social media. Um, Thank goodness for social media allowing, you know, people to feel like you can be at home and still feel connected and not feel like you are alone in, in some of the struggles. But there are a lot of stressful things that come to us through social media and there is a need to kind of filter what we allow in if it's creating a lot of extra stress. So there are pros and cons to social media. And we kind of talk about that too in the work that I do in, in the therapy space with clients. So I hope that answered your question. I know it was super long-winded. No, yeah. Literally, you and I were talking about social media earlier. And I remember during the George Floyd protests, there were, I don't know if you saw, I don't know if you were on social media during that time, but um, there were a lot of people, at least my followers, who were saying, oh, if you're not posting anything on your feed or on your story or using your platform to speak up about issues, then I know where you stand in terms of your beliefs. And if you don't post, then I'm going to unfollow, which I found that that line of logic to be kind of problematic because, you know, what if people aren't posting because they're taking off of social media, like taking a social media hiatus. I remember around the time uh, the whole George Floyd um, protests were going on that literally two days before, three days before, was when my Tita Bambi died. So I was literally going through the grieving process and to be seeing the news and like hearing about what happened and like on top of that, like the pressure of, oh, you need to post and be active on social media. And if you're not, then I know where you stand in terms of your beliefs, your racial beliefs. And I, I don't know, like I understand the whole notion of speaking out and standing up for what is right and using your platform to speak out but there's also a fine line like you can't have that mentality because I think it's just it's really problematic it doesn't solve anything 
like it's good to bring awareness, but you know, like you can't just assume that someone, if someone is not speaking out, that they're being um, like, what's the word? Like complicit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, and like a lot of people, maybe like we were going through something and we just couldn't be on social media. So it's like that mentality. Um, but yeah, actually now, like lately, I've just been, I've just been off of social media because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like social media, like I go on it impulsively because I feel like there is something that I'm searching for when I go on, but then I end up not finding it. So I don't know. What what are your thoughts on like the whole social media craze? This is such a loaded question. I have so many feelings about it. Um, You know, just I may be oversimplifying this, but what I'll say is I I really allow um, the way that I think about most things and interactions and people as, you know, I think about actions or inaction. But I also think about the intentions behind the action. And when it comes to someone's perception of anything, right, whether it's you're not posting on social media in, in support of George Floyd or other protests relevant to the Black Lives Matter movement as equaling uh, being complicit, um, or if you are an advocate, right, that... that it's every person's right to post or not post, to be active or not active. And until you understand what each person's intentions are behind it, can we actually judge what people do or don't do, what they post or don't post? And so, you know, when people come into the therapy space and kind of bring these types of conflicts into session, you know, someone accused me of, of doing X, Y, and Z because I actually made a statement on social media or I didn't make a, a, a statement on social media, I, I often will leave the example of the facts versus feelings. And when I kind of give that example to people, you know, I'll kind of take Alyssa and I, right? So Alyssa's perception of the truth, her facts might be, you know, she doesn't post and that doesn't mean that she's complicit and perhaps my perception of the truth my facts are that if Alyssa doesn't post that she is complicit and so both of us believe that those truths are the facts so we're not getting anywhere because we're basically agreeing to disagree on this truth But when we do not agree and we do not respect one another, try to have empathy for the intention behind it, then we're invalidating the person's feelings, right? So if I were to listen to Alyssa and and not respect the fact that this is how she feels when she doesn't post and to honor that that's her right, and to hear that that is the reason why she isn't posting, then I'm not validating her feelings. So I really try to look at every interaction as what are the intentions behind what people do or they don't do? And what are the feelings behind the, the 
kind of disagreement that's happening. And I think that that allows people to kind of look at things with a different lens in a little bit of a softer way. It certainly leaves me feeling less angry when I'm on social media. And I hope that that leaves other people, you know, kind of leaving interactions a little bit less activated, a little bit more insightful. Um, It's a tool that I use often with my clients that appears to help. And so hopefully people can gain some insight from that as well. Yes, yes. And I also feel like on Instagram, I'm, I'm not sure if if you're on it that much um but what's really helpful and kind of like the bright side of social media is now i'm noticing a lot of therapy self-care posts um basically just teaching us how to take care of ourselves um tells us about how anxiety shows up in the body Um, Just like really helpful mental health posts like that. And like a lot of therapists have created accounts for that um, to help people and like help reach people who maybe can't um, get their hands on therapy, even though that's not like a replacement. Their posts are really helpful. And like I look at them and I see a lot of them on my feed. So I guess that is one of the greater sides of the whole social media craze that we're in. But yeah, um, I just want to throw a disclaimer out there. Um, I'm not saying like, oh, just because like I don't post whatever, like Black Lives Matter, guys. Like that's where I stand. So if you needed to hear it from me, there you go. Um, Speaking of social media, though, I have some questions that you guys responded to in my poll on my story. So shall we get into them? Let's do it. I'm excited. So I want to, which one should we do first? I feel like we should start with this one. Okay. I'd love to hear advice on the fear of seeing a therapist slash opening up because I get like a lot of people... This is an issue with a lot of people when they go to therapists. So, okay. So, I will say to you that, you know, vulnerability, I think that that's a key theme and that it's really hard for a lot of people to be vulnerable. Um, and, and why it is that it's difficult for some people to be vulnerable has a lot of different kind of roots. You know, there are societal roots in in what it means to be vulnerable. There are cultural roots in what it means to be vulnerable. Um, You know, I I think that there is, there has been in the past, sometimes a connection between vulnerability and weakness. And if I were to admit that I'm struggling with something, if I were to admit that there is a problem that I can't solve on my own, does that mean that I'm weak? And I think that that may be one of the challenges that presents itself when people are seeking, you know, the potential of finding a therapist. So I think that the 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 idea of having to rip that Band-Aid off and to talk about painful things with a stranger, that's the other thing. People don't know me from a hole in the wall when they first meet me. And I'm they're entrusting some of the most valuable, painful things. And I hear really painful things a lot. 
and I'm honored to hold that, but just the, the amount of will that it takes for people to get into the room with me and to be brave enough to share it, it, it takes a lot of effort. So I think that it's a combination of having to open up to a stranger, having to be vulnerable. I think the other thing is, you know, if people grew up um, kind of not being exposed to mental health being something that was openly talked about, accepted, sought out, that it's a little bit harder to, you know, openly talk about getting into treatment. I mean, it's really not uncommon that, you know, clients in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s will come to me and, and they'll say to me, I've got family members that have stuff, but I'm the only person that's ever sought out treatment and it's not okay for me to talk to them about it. In fact, they're not comfortable with me going to talk to somebody. So I think that there's also some stigma that still exists. Um, you know, back to your comment about social media, I yeah. do truly believe that social media has, has given um, our society a platform to talk more openly about mental health. And I think that that has positively impacted the stigma that we felt in, in the past. Um, but it's still a challenge, you know, mental health is something, you know, things like depression and anxiety. These are things that you can't see, right? So if I fell and I scraped my knee, I have a gaping wound, I can go to an ER, a nurse or a doctor can see it, they know what to do to it, they can sew it up, they can measure the wound, they know what medication to put on it, it's a simple fix. But when somebody is depressed and anxious, you can't always see what the symptoms are. You don't always know what to look for. And I think that's why it's more challenging for people to really understand what's happening when somebody is struggling with depression and anxiety. So, you know, there are a number of factors that make it um, a challenge for people to to find someone or open up to someone. I also think that depending on where people live, I mean, we're really blessed. We live in the New York City metropolitan area. There is a plethora of options, but the further outside of metropolitan areas you get, the much, much more difficult it is to find good mental health clinicians. So access is a huge problem. Uh, cost is another problem. So there are just a, a, a large number of reasons that finding someone good, opening up to somebody and just being vulnerable remains a challenge. Yeah. I totally agree with that because sometimes when I'm going through something and I'm out with my friends, it's even hard for me to open up to my friends about it. And they'll notice... <laughs> Because literally maybe two weeks ago, I was going out hiking with my friends and I was kind of going through something. It wasn't even like that serious, but I'm not even trying to downplay like what I was going through. I was just very spaced out when I was with them. And my one friend was like, are you okay? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah. Like, I'm like, yeah, but I feel like I can't open up to many people because one, there's like, the fear of judgment also there is not fear but i just don't believe they would one listen or two understand because i notice sometimes when i vent to my friends um 
my friends will be like, you know what, I'm, I'm here to listen if you ever want to talk. But when it comes to talking sometimes, um, sometimes I feel like I'm not being listened to and like therefore not acknowledged. So that creates this, not stigma, but this belief in my mind that ugh, maybe I can't go to this person to talk. Maybe I can't go to these people to talk because they won't listen, nor will they understand um, but, uh, the other day I was like opening up to my, my girl, Myra. Hey, hey Myra. hi, Myra. Love you. Love you. I love you, Myra. <laughs> You're next on my podcast, girl. <laughs> but I was talking, I was opening up to my girl, Myra the other day because I was just going crazy. I was like, Myra, I'm going crazy and I have to talk to you. And she's like, do you want to talk? I'm like, yes. Let me just try this. Like, let me just unpack all my feelings and like she really helped and also my girl elena like my girl elena hey like my girls elena and myra have been there for me like in my worst darkest moments and like i treasure them with all my heart and like they were literally there for me when i was going through the motions when you know like tita bambi died but um I wanted to segue into how do we become more vulnerable? I, I mean, I will say that I've been in mental health for 15 years. And I think that becoming more vulnerable will be my life's work. So I don't think the work is ever done. Yeah. But I also believe that vulnerability is something that is... is um, it's a continuum. It's something that we're constantly working on. It's something that will depend on who it is we would like to be vulnerable with and how deep we want those relationships to be. Obviously, vulnerability will will look different depending on the nature of the relationship. I mean, you don't have to tell every single itty bitty detail about your life yeah. to somebody that you just met. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the people that you want to be more vulnerable with are the people that you want deeper connections with. And so I think that's where the work begins. So, um, you know, I think that in order to start to be more vulnerable, we have to explore what are the barriers to becoming more vulnerable. And, and you brought up a really good point, which is judgment. And if you were to think about anxiety and the symptoms of anxiety, one of the symptoms of anxiety is the fear of negative evaluations. Someone will think about me differently if I let them know that something is wrong. And the truth of the matter is, if you're working on a relationship with someone that you believe to be close to you, that if you were to disclose something and, and be vulnerable with this person who you love and care about and you believe loves and cares about you, that it should not change the way they view you. It does not right. mean that you're weak. It does not mean that they should love you less. In fact, often it's the opposite. They It, it, it strengthens the relationship and a lot of times they'll love you even more. Um, and, and if for some reason you become vulnerable and disclose something intimate with someone 
and it produces a negative outcome, then that might become a springboard to reassess that relationship to say, do I push forward in strengthening this relationship? I don't know that I can safely go there with this person. And so maybe I should pull back. I don't know. Maybe we need to reevaluate the situation. And obviously that's not to say like, oh, spill all your tea to some (laughs) random stranger in the street or like spill all your tea to your roommate who you just met like three months ago. It's like you can be or you can choose to be vulnerable with the people who are close to you in your life that you like you trust. Um, But in terms of opening up to a therapist, I feel like that is different because the therapist is there for you. Um, Yeah, they're professional. um, So what can you speak on that? That's a really good question. So what I will start by saying, and I tell a lot of patients this, a good therapist is like a good pair of shoes. We either fit really well or you find another pair of shoes, okay? You're paying for a service when it comes to a therapist. And yes, you know, you want to be able to establish that rapport, but if it doesn't feel right, you have the right to to find a better fit. So, you know, I I think about vulnerability with a therapist and 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 I think about it in in both respects. When I was beginning my training as a therapist, it was highly encouraged that we went into our own individual therapy. So I I went into therapy, I've done my own individual work, and I know what it's like to be a client in the chair on the patient side and what it's like to have to trust someone and to divulge my own information to that someone. And now that the role is reversed, I understand that my role as a therapist is to create a safe space, non-judgment, I mean, I basically tell my patients, unless you tell me that you want to hurt yourself or someone else, there is zero judgment in this room and you will not see me blink an eye or flinch. And it comes in time where people will kind of talk about things going on in their lives. Some people will feel like they're able to talk about more painful things earlier on in the course of treatment. But I also have clients that I've met with regularly for years. I'm still finding out new, really deep and painful things after working with them for five years. So it really just depends on each individual client and their, their comfort level. I don't ever push the work that we do. My job is to create a safe space and to maintain a therapeutic relationship. And I think that that's the one thing I would convey to people that are interested in seeking out a therapist and, and, and kind of hesitant about like, what is this? And, and should I be worried about it? That, you know, you won't know until you feel it out. And I think that if you go in the first time and you're kind of on the fence, go back. If it feels really good the first time, keep going. If you're on the fence the first time, go back one more time. If you're still on the fence the second time, you probably want to find a better pair of shoes or a different pair of shoes. I don't want to say better. 
Um, but I, I think that people will, will be vulnerable and divulge at their own pace when they're comfortable. And, and as that relationship builds with their therapist, it really takes time. Awesome. I like that. And I also think it's important to note that vulnerability, like you and many have said, is is not a weakness. It's not um, a downfall. It's okay to be vulnerable. We all go through shit at Chris on my podcast. Good. <laughs> I'm so excited. Now yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, like, we all go through shit, guys. And, like, we all go through it. And, like... I feel like we live in a world where you have to always put on a happy face and like compose yourself. And I mean, yeah, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be honest and real about your feelings. And that doesn't mean that you should close yourself off and, you know, like not seek help or talk to someone. Like it's okay to feel all these things and like, yeah, just wanted to throw that out there because people have to know. Um, but yeah, okay, good, good stuff. Yeah. Next question. So this kind of bounces off the last question. It's um, It says, I don't think I'm mentally ill, but would love to utilize therapy. Any resources in mind? Very important. Sure. I love this question because I think that, you know, just like we talked a little bit about stigma with mental health with, with some folks in society, that there's also a, a, at times an association between mental health and there being a problem, right? Mental health is not necessarily about having a problem and then going to solve it. It's not a reactive situation. I think that mental health is a proactive thing, right? Um, and so when I think about preventative mental health measures, I think about stress management. I think about mindfulness practices. I think about self-care. I think about sleeping well. I think about having a community and a network of supports around me. Um, I think about having structure because we all need structure. Um, and when I say structure, you know, what that means is kind of having a routine, things that anchor our day. And some of us work anchors our day or school anchors our day. But even if we didn't have work or school, there are things that we have to kind of anchor every single day at predictable times that create stability in our lives. And, and these are things that on a, a preventive level we can do to avoid depression, anxiety, other mental health conditions. Um, it would be really the same thing, you know, I, I, and let me just backtrack a little bit. I often make a parallel example when I'm talking to clients that depression and anxiety and other mental health conditions are very much like hypertension, asthma, diabetes, right? So there's kind of like this trifecta of risk. You've got modifiable risk factors and you've got non-modifiable risk factors. Your non-modifiable risk factors are genetics. 
If you have a family member that has struggled with a mental health condition, then you are predisposed to a mental health condition. Does that mean you'll ever have a mental health condition? No, but it means you're predisposed. Non-modified, so mon- modifiable um, uh, kind of risk factors would be the things that you can control that can cause things, right? So for the person that is is at risk for hypertension, diabetes, asthma, you know, you can control whether or not you smoke cigarettes. You can control whether or not you take in excess sodium. You can control whether or not you exercise. You can control whether or not you engulf yourself in tons of stress. These are modifiable things. The same applies to mental health. So when we think about prevention, you can keep your stress level down. And how you keep your stress level down looks different for lots of people. So exercise is a really good way. There's some people that work out and that is their safe space and their stress release. My dad. Oh yeah. Well, (laughs) my my brother, Alyssa's dad, he will ride for days and days and days. And that is, that is his safe space. He's also a very spiritual man, my brother. And so, you know, um, Alyssa and I were talking not too long ago about you know, the, the very strong correlation between people that have a strong faith base and that connection with resilience, stress response, and the prevention of mental health disorders. Um, but a, a strong yoga practice, a strong meditation practice, you know, due to COVID-19, there have been a lot of efforts to offer free and, um, you know, promotional trials for apps like Headspace, um, and other, uh, Fabulous is another app that a, a lot of my patients have been using that came from, I believe, either Chapel Hill or Duke University's behavioral um, science lab. And it helps people establish healthy habits. Simple stuff like drinking enough water every day or, you know, starting a mindfulness practice and just kind of meditating for a few minutes every day. So, Uh, Mental health is not about being reactive. It's really about being proactive. And people do not have to be clinically depressed or clinically anxious or have a mental health disorder to enter treatment. They could be nice and normal like you and I and going through some shit because Melissa said it's okay to curse. So. (laughs) I'm going to throw some four-letter words no, around. No, we keep it real. <laughs> we keep it real you know, here. Most of my people are going through something significant. You know, they they lost their job or they had a significant breakup or someone died. You know, so these are people that were kind of trucking along and doing fine. And all of a sudden something really stressful happened and it just knocked them off their center and they needed help getting back. And once they get back, they're fine. And they don't need the services anymore. And so that's the other thing I wanted to mention, that I think the other barrier to people kind of jumping into mental health treatment is a lot of people sometimes feel like it's a life sentence. Oh my God, if I go into treatment, I'll be be therapized forever. Or if I have to take a pill, I'll be on a pill forever. 
Not everybody needs therapy forever and not everybody needs medication forever. Some people just need help when life is hard and when life is no longer hard, the help ends. So I think that um, if more people knew that you could choose who would fit your style best in a therapist, you could choose how long the treatment was, you could hop in even not having a, a mental health condition, just needing to stay ahead of any potential stress down the pike, then and knew how to access mental health services, good mental health providers, that there would be more people actually getting into treatment. So um, hopefully that answers your question. Oh, yeah, it does. Um, I definitely do want to like leave some resources down in the description below. Like, sure. wait, this is not YouTube, so maybe it might not be down below. But I will leave some resources, um, easy access resources um, to some tools that can help you guys out if you guys are going through something. You guys don't even have to be going through something traumatic. Like, that's the beauty of it. Like, that's the point that we're trying to make is you don't have to have depression running in your family. You don't have to be going through something traumatic right now in order to feel bad or in order to validate your need for help. Like, this is for everybody. So definitely I will link the resources in the description somewhere. People somewhere. can also go to my practice's website. So if you go to www.unionsquarepractice.com, the practice has done a phenomenal job of doing a series of webinars that address a number of different issues that people have kind of brought to the table during COVID-19 and um, some of the issues that we have addressed in free webinars that are open to the public. You don't have to be a patient of the practice. Sleep hygiene, um, you know, uh, mindful parenting for people that have their kids at home, um, you know, sex and intimacy during quarantine and, and kind of dealing with relationships and intimacy during the pandemic. So I, I encourage people to check out our website because there are a bunch of free resources there. Um, we have a pretty active social media presence as well. For those that are actually looking for a, a kind of additional therapy resources outside of our website, I really do recommend psychologytoday.com. Mm -hmm. um, our particular practice, unfortunately, does not accept insurances, and I recognize that there are challenges for people that cannot afford to pay out of pocket, but Psychology Today is great because you can do a search for providers and you can do it by your zip code, you can do it by your gender preference for a therapist, you can um, choose according to um, what insurance company you have, and then if there's something specific that you're going through, if you're struggling with you know, uh, alcohol or substances, if you need somebody that specializes in relationship counseling, or maybe you're struggling with um, you know, career counseling needs that you can actually, it's, it's like a match.com for therapists. So I highly recommend psychology today. Um, it's actually a tool that I use myself when I'm helping clients to find other providers when either they um, need additional options or they're moving out of the New York City area. So definitely check that out.
Cool. Good to know. Good to know. And also, since a lot of my followers listening to this are like in college, um, I know that most, if not all, college campuses offer some sort of free like on-campus counseling. That helps too. Um, I've been to Paces once. Um, I was actually surprised at how like helpful and like cathartic was like it, it was great um so definitely you know take advantage of that resource as well you can go to that um but again like the these resources are tools and not a like substitute for therapy so you know just want to put that out there but you know anything helps um so i wanted to like question about how treatments are so I know there's like talk therapy but there and then like all obviously like medications but what are like the other types of therapy that is like out there the other types of treatment that are out there so I think you know I I I am personally somebody that really uh, appreciates a holistic approach so I have clients that come to me specifically not wanting to be on medication or really wanting to focus on supplements instead of medication. So, you know, for people with mild to moderate symptoms of depression, anxiety, other mental health conditions, we have talked about supplements. We um, can prescribe medications. There are different types of talk therapy depending on the types of conditions people have. Um, my approach is more of a supportive psychotherapy, so I do not have a very specific um, kind of skill set. So if somebody had, um, for example, if they have post-traumatic stress disorder, they've had something extremely traumatic that's happened and they require a very trauma-focused type of therapy, I would refer them to a therapist that specializes in trauma. Or if somebody has, um, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD, that, you know, the evidence supports that there are certain types of therapies that are best specifically for OCD treatment. So that's where kind of knowing what type of therapist would be helpful for each client would be best. Um, we have a fantastic clinical coordinator. Hey, Emma Turner. Hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> And she's really good at kind of talking to each potential client and figuring out um, what each person needs and which therapist might be the best fit. In general, when people are very new to therapy, I don't think they need to worry so much about what type of therapy they need. I think they just need to get in and figure out who makes the best fit with them. Um, you know, when we start talking about other potential treatments, you know, neurostimulation, brain stimulation, things like TMS, um, transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is something that has been around for a while. It um, is basically magnet therapy. Um, yeah. And it's it sounds cool. It is not invasive. It is something that we use for, it's FDA approved for treatment resistant depression. It's also FDA approved for obsessive compulsive disorder. It is something that doesn't require anesthesia. It can be done outpatient in our office. It's really for people who either 
don't want to be on medications, can't tolerate medications, or they've tried so many medications and nothing works. Um, you know, we also, um, I do genetic testing in my office. Actually, now that I'm working virtually, I have genetic tests sent to people's homes. But genetic testing has been around for a little while. You know, I've been working with genetic testing for about five years. And the cool thing with genetic testing for psychiatry is that it allows people that are interested in exploring medication for their symptoms to know what medications are going to be the best for them and how their body actually metabolizes medication. Um, so it actually allows us to personalize the dose of medications depending on which ones would be best for them. And then, you know, ketamine is something that has been um, approved in the past couple of years for treatment-resistant depression. That is... Um, it, it's FDA approved for intranasal and also for IV. In our practice, we do intranasal. Um, and, you know, there are other options for treatment that are done on an inpatient level, which re would require people to be kind of hospitalized. But on the outpatient setting, that's pretty much what we work with, you know, um, therapy, um, a, a skills-based focus therapy depending on the patient's specific condition, um, supplementation or medication management, TMS, ketamine, um, the genetic testing. That's what we can accomplish in our outpatient setting. Cool. So, okay, I think the last time I was here in your apartment, we were making jokes about like ASMR. So you know what ASMR is? It's like, it's not even just the eating videos. It's like, um, I forgot what the acronym is, but it's basically sounds that are amplified. And for many, that's like a form of, I don't want to say therapy, but it's a form of consolement that people do rely on and so if you type in asmr to youtube you'll see a lot of videos that say um asmr comfort for depression or anxiety and then you were telling me that there is some form of therapy that uses sounds that is kind of related to asmr um yeah you said that yeah. yeah, and that's why I thought like your like coworker. That's why I thought he got the blue yeti microphone. Oh <laughs> I, thought, I thought her co. Okay, so, so like, let me give you guys the rundown. She was telling me about how like her coworker got a blue yeti mic, and I was like, whoa, he's gonna make ASMR videos like for therapy. So yeah, you were telling me about this like making sounds like. That was my boss. Guys. Okay, uh, the the um blue yeti but i don't think he did it to make sounds <laughs> but wait but you told me that there's this this form of therapy that uses sounds that are used to like uh to like help someone i don't well were we maybe talking about um biofeedback and neurofeedback and maybe some of the sleep meditation so you know, I think that, okay, so I actually quickly, because I'm like, wait, just don't press the button. Hold on. Did I not? Okay. I'm trying not to press the button. So we, I actually like very geekily looked up um, ASMR, which stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. So basically it's like a brain massage. So if we were to think about things that can kind of calm 
areas of the brain that, you know, there are certain um, sleep meditations that I will recommend to patients when they're having trouble with insomnia issues. And, and I actually direct them to some really good free YouTube links. Um, and I believe they are delta waves that, that oh. people are hearing that actually the sounds of that can kind of help to calm them to cure, not cure insomnia, but help to kind of alleviate the insomnia so that they can fall asleep better. Um, biofeedback and neurofeedback are a little bit different where um, there's something called heart rate variability that when people are in a state of heightened anxiety, that, you know, there is like this mind-body connection and there there is a detectable change and elevation in your heart rate and, and your blood pressure. So um, with biofeedback and neurofeedback and, and with... Uh, we use, I use specifically um, the M Wave, um, which is an apparatus which you can actually either connect to your finger or connect to your earlobe, and it will tell you whether or not you are in or out of coherence and whether or not your heart rate variability is larger or smaller. And through breathing exercises, you can actually shrink that down. So you know, I, I think that with the sounds, that it's probably more of the delta waves we were talking about. But, um, you know, there are a number of different things that we can do both visually and from an auditory standpoint that can help calm the brain. And the calming of the brain can be for lots of things. It can be for stress release. And that's why people often report that listening to music would be helpful. Um or, you know, kind of listening to other things that feel like pleasant distractions are helpful. Um, oh, my God, I don't even remember talking about my boss and, and the Yeti, but anyway. As you guys can tell, I really do like ASMR. And, like, so, like... <laughs> Like I have, like I first started out watching like the food videos, but then I like kind of delved deeper into the ASMR realm, and like I was listening to like um, like ASMR for like insomnia, anxiety. Um, they kind of help. I, now I want to get your opinion. Should I like recommend this to other people? Because I don't want to like recommend. Hey, listen to some ASMR. It'll calm your anxiety. Like. Should should I recommend this to people or not? I'll say this. It helped me um, listen at your discretion. It's nothing bad. It helps me with sleep. Um, can't speak how other people will react, but if you're into ASMR and you want to give it a try, then give it a try, but, you know, be responsible. <laughs> yeah. Um very interesting stuff like i feel like people forget that the brain is such a complex organ in our body it doesn't just like do it like it, it doesn't just serve us in one way where oh like you remember all the information that you study for a test tomorrow like it's it's so many things and it's like the brain is so interconnected and interrelated with the rest of our body. And I think about this a lot where a lot of people like to, not like to, but a lot of people will talk about um, like mental health 
um, in a way that disregards the rest of the body. So I think it's really important to take care of your physiological health, um, your overall health, um, and that way your mental health will. I don't want to see. I don't want to say like be better or like cure all your problems, but you'll be on a better like foot or a stepping stone if your overall physiological health is in balance and healthy. But um, yeah, I want to move on to the next question because this is interesting. I like this question a lot. So my one friend, she said, talk about imposter syndrome. And earlier you were asking me, what's the first thing you think about when you hear the words imposter syndrome? And I like immediately said, oh, Elle Woods from Legally Blonde when she first goes into Harvard and she doesn't think she's good enough. Was like, was that the right movie? Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So uh, she doesn't think she's good enough. She thinks everyone around her is smarter than her. And I think that's an apparent issue, like at least for kids like me who have just graduated college um, who are now navigating their world, um, not trying to navigate through life and trying to acclimate to their new work environments and maybe not feeling like, oh, do I really deserve to be like working here? Like everyone here is so like top notch and I'm just a kid straight out of college. Um, even more now that I feel like the pressure is on, um, you know, like with the whole pandemic, like job jobs are like really scarce. So what's your take on imposter syndrome? I love this question. Thank you to whoever posed the question. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. Um, And and I think that when we originally heard this question, my initial reaction back to Alyssa was, you know, this shows up in the therapy space very differently depending on the person. But in general, it's kind of this automatic, anxious thought of, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, you know, am I capable enough? Um, listen, I I am in a private practice in the middle of Manhattan, New York City. I'm on the faculty of New York University. I am working with clients that are surrounded by some of the highest achieving, fastest moving alphas. And I get a lot of imposter syndrome problems in this space. I laugh to a point where I almost spit on your microphone. I'm so sorry. I don't want to ruin your blue yeti. I'm sorry, Liz. <laughs> so you know, and I'll I'll bring in some of the techniques that I, I often work with with clients that struggle with some of these automatic thoughts. So. CBT, which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, is a form of therapy that we use. There's an awesome resource that I'll give to you guys. Um, It's called the Anxiety and Worry Workbook. You can purchase it on Amazon. It's like $11. Beck and Clark are the authors, and I work from this often. And if you were to look at this workbook, it's going to walk you through all of the different symptoms of anxiety 
and all of the different thinking errors that the anxious part of the brain kind of leaves us feeling, right? So when somebody comes in and says, you know what, I just started my master's program at, at, at NYU, or I just started this bachelor's program at NYU, and everybody is so smart. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm stuck in this work group, and everybody's brilliant, and I just, I don't belong here. That, you know, what we talk through and, and what we strategize is, that's what you're anxious about. The anxious part of your brain is telling you that, that this automatic negative thinking pattern is telling you that you don't belong here, but we're going to counteract that. We're going to try to turn the volume down on the anxious part of your brain, and I want you to look for the evidence. What does the evidence support? And, you know, kind of weighing the evidence and giving yourself a, 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 an alternative thought to kind of argue against the anxious part of your brain can help to reshape those thinking patterns because there is something known as neuroplasticity, you know, your which is, you know, your your brain has the ability to change and regenerate and these thinking patterns that we have just because we have them doesn't mean they're stuck that way. And these thinking patterns, they're influenced by a lot of things. They're influenced by things that have happened to us in the past. They're influenced by the way that we grew up. They're influenced by the environment around us. They're influenced by what society tells us. There are just so many factors that, that, that um, kind of create some of our thinking patterns. And when we start to realize that the thinking patterns don't always serve us, we can change them. So take, for example, the I'm surrounded by all of these super smart people and I don't belong here. The evidence here is, well, I have a 3.9 GPA. I had really strong recommendation letters. I got an early decision. The evidence supports that I do belong here because I was accepted here. And each time you remind yourself of the evidence that slowly begins to shift those anxious negative thinking patterns to remind you that the truth is, yeah, the anxious part of my brain feels like I don't belong here, but the evidence supports that I actually do because I got let in. My, I was let in by my merit. And so that is the imposter syndrome is something that we can work through and we work through it by thought recording. Um, we track and trend when the I'm not good enough, I don't belong here, I'm not smart enough shows up. And we get to the core of why it is we believe that. What is the core fear or the anxious thinking pattern behind it? What can we say in retaliation to that anxious thought? What is the evidence to support it? What is an alternative thought that we can give ourselves? And then we just give it to ourselves every single time. And over time, that anxious thought goes away. Yeah, I feel like challenging our thoughts whenever we are not even just like imposter syndrome, but whenever we feel like, oh, I'm not good enough to be here or like I'm just not good enough or oh that was just by chance that was a fluke like whenever I'm in these situations I like to challenge my line of thinking by saying oh well 
if I wasn't good enough to get this job or this internship, these people had thousands of people competing against me. They could have chosen any one of those people. So therefore, I deserve to be here. I think kind of stopping yourself and practicing that really helps. Um, And it's also kind of boosted my confidence and like my mental health that whenever I come to these situations, I'm able to just stop and think rationally like, okay, like, no, I'm not, I don't suck. Like I'm good enough to be here or wherever. Um, So it's really just being mindful and practicing. Like practice makes perfect. And then over time, you'll get better at it. And maybe those thoughts will still be there, but you'll know how to deal with them more effectively. Um, So yeah, wow. I, I feel like I was just like throughout all of college, I feel like I was just dealing with that. Now I'm at a point where like I've come to like this whole mentality of just like, okay, Alyssa, stop, like shut up, Alyssa, and like look at the facts. Well, not literally, but you know, like your self-talk is really important. And um, something that my friend Elena suggested me to do is write down all the positive things about yourself that you like and I don't want to say the negative traits, but yeah, like everyone has a negative side. Um, Write all the negative qualities about you down and see how you can work to improve them. Um, So like being mindful and learning how to practice dealing with these situations. It's easier said than done. Um, It takes a lot of effort, but you know, it's worth it. Um... Let me see if I had any more questions. <laughs> I have a one. I have the one troll question that I kind of want to roast, but like it's not even like I'm mean, whatever. Why do people? That's such a dumb question. It makes no sense. That's <laughs> gonna get cut off. But I actually want to add something to your last comment. I really do believe that the way that we talk to ourselves directly influences the way that we look at the world, the way that we approach situations, and we have got to be kinder to ourselves, people. And so I really do believe in affirmations, as cheesy as you think it sounds. I'm the girl that you're more than likely going to find with like a a note card or a post-it by a, a mirror or on my desk, just reminding myself something positive. Um, I have a gratitude practice that I feel is very important to my everyday, just finding wins in the smallest of things, finding gratitude in the simplest of things, and trying to find the positives. Because, you know, the world has been turned upside down. 2020 has been a hot mess. And I think that because there is so much uncertainty and so much out of our control, we don't know when this is changing. We don't know when life is going to... I mean, I don't think that life is ever going to go back to what it was pre-pandemic. I think that there is going to need to be an adjustment to a new normal. But I also think that until we know 
more about what the future is going to look like, we have to try to find hope. Um, I, I'll, I will share that uh, a couple of weeks ago, a patient um, shared with me an affirmation. We've been working a lot on the power of positive self-talk and also affirmations. And this particular week, she found one. I was so proud of her. I won't give her name just for privacy purposes. Um, the affirmation came from Miriam Kaba, who is a, an activist who did a lot of work um, around uh, prison reform and domestic violence. And the affirmation is, hope is a discipline. And that just rang so true for me that every single day I remind myself that hope is a discipline. We don't wake up with hope. Hope is something that we have to think about, we have to look for, we have to want. And it's the same for, for looking at ourselves in the mirror and finding something nice to say about ourselves or walking into a room and thinking about something positive to think about ourselves in relationship to how we'll engage with the people in that room. And so we have to be kinder to ourselves. Definitely. And I feel like with all the social media posts and like from music to advertising, there are subliminal messages in these um, things that kind of program our mind to think negatively about ourselves so just keep that in mind guys um most advertisements and like influencers are trying to sell you a dream and that shouldn't take away from your own self-love and self-respect um but i wanted to share like another little tip that i like to do um going back to affirmations Sometimes if I'm feeling doubtful or I need a positive message to look at, I know some people will write sticky notes and like post them on their mirror or um, like wherever in their house. Mine is a little more environmentally conscious, um, but I like to write up I, I like to go on notes in my phone and I'll write up like a mantra like literally my last mantra was you can do it Alyssa and like I screenshotted it and I set that as my wallpaper on my phone like my lock screen so every time I pick up a, my phone because everyone is on their phones yes. every time you pick up your phone and unlock it you'll see like you can do it Alyssa or I'm beautiful or whatever you could also do that on your laptop. I mean, like, these are things that we use every day, like pretty much every second of the day. Yeah. So that's an easy way. And it's it's kind of like, even though maybe if you're not paying attention, like while you're unlocking your phone, it's kind of subliminal. Like just because you're not paying attention to it doesn't mean you don't see it. Like you definitely see it. So um that's just a helpful little life hack that I do, a little mental health life hack. But uh, yeah, guys, I think that was, that was a pretty good session. It was. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for agreeing to do this with me. Anytime. Um, let me, guys, like, let me know what you think about this episode. Like, I feel like 
And that's kind of why, like, I was on a three-week hiatus from doing my podcast. It was just kind of like, I felt like my content was kind of stale. But I'm happy I brought you on. And I'm happy that we had an actual conversation that, like, flowed. And it's something about, like, yeah, this is Lissa's life. But I want this to add value um, and I want this to help people in some way, even though maybe I can't really teach you how to do something like I can bring guests on and they can share their knowledge and I can ask them questions. But let me know what you think about these episodes, guys. I want to hear your feedback. Also, I was checking my analytics. Um, I think the last time I checked was like a week ago. And I have 84 downloads on all my podcasts. I'm so sorry. Like, thank you guys so much. I love you. I love you guys. I'm almost at 100. I act like I have thousands of listeners listening to me every week. That's not the case. But like, I hope so. (laughs) Thank you. I really hope so. But yeah, thank you guys so much. Please share this to people who are interested in mental health or even if you're not interested maybe you're going through something i feel like this is something really important to listen to um no matter who you are this is for everyone on the spectrum everyone is welcome here so thank you guys so much um i'll catch you next sunday with a different guest other than that i love you guys good night